I did mention that I do believe in, in Swiss time. So we started at 9. We ended at 10.15 in about 8 seconds. I was not happy about that. Uh, it is now 10.45, and it's time to begin with our next speaker. His bio is available to you, so I'm not going to take up his valuable time. He's a fabulous teacher. You'll find out why he's such a popular teacher of history at West Point. Rob. Thanks, Tom. Well, thank you all very much. It is great to be here. Um, and of all the, the places to hold um, Cato University's College of History and Philosophy, um, Philadelphia, at least to my liking, is, uh, is just perfect. So um, I'm really excited to be here, and I'm excited to talk to you a little bit about um, the 18th century in my presentation today. Tomorrow, I'll talk a little bit more about 19th century and 20th century American history. Um, but the 18th century is near and dear to my heart, and it's certainly um, a time when this city, uh, Philadelphia, was the American metropolis. Um, when you think about the, the colonial period of what would become the United States, when you go back to the origins of the various British North American colonies, um, the one theme that sort of emerges is that there isn't a theme. Right? The theme that sort of emerges is, is diversity. The, the, the people who landed in Jamestown in 1607 um, were there because they wanted to find gold. Um, you know, they knew of the Spanish experience in American colonization and exploration, and they assumed that theirs would be similar. Um, so they went to, to Jamestown, Virginia in search of gold. Um, meanwhile, 13 years later, the pilgrims landed in Plymouth in Massachusetts. And they were there because they wanted to honor God. They wanted to be able to worship as they pleased. Um, the great wave of Puritan migrants who soon followed on their heels, um, you know, their leader uh, expressed his intention to create um, a society that would be so good and godlike, um, such a, a beacon to the rest of the world that it would be like a city on a hill. And people on the other side of the ocean, back in old England, would be inspired to emulate their example. So we have people pursuing profits. Um, we have people uh, settling in the new world for primarily religious reasons. Um, and then we have people in the middle colonies, like the Quakers, um, the people who founded Philadelphia. They really had sort of a hybrid set of ambitions. Um, they were here, of course, because they wished to practice their faith as they chose. Um, but they also were very much interested in making money. The, the old uh, adage is that a Quaker is someone who um, prays for you one day a week and prays on you the other six, right? <laughs> and, and, and so the middle colonies, in many ways, are sort of you know, literally in the middle, but also kind of figuratively in the middle as far as the models of, of you know, colonization are concerned. Um, so we have this, this very diverse group of colonies peopled by a very diverse group of colonists. Um, the people who settled New England tended to come from the East Anglia region of England. And they brought with them to New England um, the, the accent of East Anglia, the building styles of East Anglia, the, the sports of East Anglia. Um, the people who settled in the American South tended to come from the south of London. Um, and they brought their folkways and their customs and their accents. The people who settled in the middle colonies tended to come from the British Midlands. 
Um, and the, the same story is true. So we have all of these different colonies, um, and, and they're all sort of settled uh, at different times by different people for different reasons. And, and one of the, the most interesting things about the, the 18th century um, is, is how they begin to find things in common. They begin to grow together. Separately, in terms of politics, of course, because this is a period when they enjoy um, what people sometimes call benign neglect. The British government um, wasn't interfering in their affairs. And they developed uh, a habit of political autonomy, by and large. Certainly, they could govern themselves as far as internal affairs were concerned. Um, so they prized their independence. They prized their autonomy. Um, but they also prized their connection to the British Empire um, for a number of different reasons. Um, but one is that it, it plugged them into this vast and growing commercial network. And Philadelphia was at the hub of it. There are uh, these amazing accounts from the 18th century um, of, of, of the, the harbor in Philadelphia. And there's, there's one that I've assigned to my students where the, uh, the author takes note of where all the, the various ships are from. There are some from Jamaica and others from Barbados and others from Old England and others from New England. There, there are ones from the Chesapeake. Um, they're from all over the place. And all of these people are coming together here in Philadelphia and they're here to trade goods. But of course, they're not only exchanging goods. When they come together, they also exchange ideas. And it's those ideas that help to establish what, what I'd like to call an Anglo-American mind, a British-American mindset that I think is the thing that unites them more than anything else, the thing that causes them to come together more than anything else. When you think about um, what makes possible the American Revolution, I think it's that they share a certain set of principles, a certain set of ideas, and a certain set of attitudes that will first cause them um, to unite in their Britishness, but then eventually um, cause them to unite against Britain um, as Americans who are going to feel compelled to strike out um, in favor of their own independence. I, I wish I had you know, more than uh, an hour to talk to you about all of this. Um, people have you know, written many, many, many books um, about the ideas that were the forerunners of the American Revolution. Um, and among the things that I could address would be the Great Awakening, um, which I think was very important. Um, the Great Awakening was this great religious revival that began in 1739 when George Whitfield arrived on American shores, um, and he preached up and down the eastern seaboard, and wherever he went, um, you know, thousands of people turned out to see him. And uh, I think essentially what he was exposing, um, their enthusiasm for him was a reflection of the fact that they lacked enthusiasm for their, for their local um, religious institutions. The, the fact that George Whitfield leads what is called the Great Awakening suggests that Americans were at asleep as far as religion was concerned. And, and, and I'll, I'll just put out to you that I think the reason they were is that every colony had its own established church. 
So going to church, you know, was like going to a government monopoly. Going to church was like going to the Department of Motor Vehicles, right? <laughs> but, but when George Whitfield showed up, I mean, he is dynamic and compelling, and he relates his, his sermons to people's individual lives, and they respond to that. And one of the things that the Great Awakening inspires um, is the arrival in America of a bunch of upstart religious faiths, faiths that are not condoned by the, uh, the, the local colonial governments. Um, we see the rise of Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians, and, and people may be compelled by law to attend the Church of England or in New England, the Congregational Puritan Church, um, but in practice, many of them are gonna begin to attend these competing churches. And they're going to come to the realization, if you're a Baptist, if you're a Methodist, if you're a Presbyterian, that the government is wrong about God. And if the government could be wrong about God, the government could be wrong about anything. The government could be wrong about everything. And, and, and that is an idea that is very much in keeping with the spirit of the Enlightenment. You know, the Enlightenment is, is, is certainly a transatlantic movement that plays out both in Europe and in colonial America. And uh, among other things, it is the questioning of authority, the questioning of conventional wisdom, the belief that we don't know everything, but as we push forward, we learn more and more. The Enlightenment is uh, a period of, of, I think, just fundamental uh, creativity and, and transformation in the American colonies. And if I had just one illustration of the Enlightenment um, that I could show to you, and that's essentially what I have, it would be this, all right? Um, this is a, uh, a painting done by uh, Charles Wilson Peale. It's a self-portrait, and the title is The Artist in His Museum. Now, Charles Wilson Peale maintained a museum for the American Philosophical Society. Back in the 18th century, philosophy meant you know, the, the, the love of, of, of knowledge, of all knowledge. And it was established here in Philadelphia in 1743 by none other than Benjamin Franklin. So Peale ran the museum for the American Philosophical Society. And it was, I think very appropriately, on the second floor of the building that we now call Independence Hall. So immediately above the chamber where the Continental Congress met um, to debate independence, immediately above the chamber where the Constitutional Convention gathered, Peel had his museum. And when you look at it, um, you can see, first of all, the action that's taking place. He is raising the curtain. He is beckoning us to come forward, to enter, to learn, to see, to witness all of these amazing curiosities. He has assembled behind him the skeletal remains of a mastodon. Holy smokes, you know? No one had seen a mastodon. Some people thought they still existed. The idea of extinction wasn't universally accepted. They thought that they were roaming out in the Great Plains, but a mastodon. And then, and then you could see in his display cases a whole bunch of, of animals that had been, you know, I want to call them stuffed animals, but they're not like, you know, teddy bears. They're taxidermed animals, um, including at the bottom left, penguins. I mean, who in Philadelphia or anywhere else in British North America for that matter 
had seen, seen a penguin. The idea is that there is so much to know about the world. There is so much to discover. There is so much to comprehend. And uh, the Enlightenment, I mean, if this is maybe the, the best work of art to exemplify the American Enlightenment, um, if there's a single individual who would exemplify the American Enlightenment, I think it would be this man, right? Benjamin Franklin. Um, Benjamin Franklin was, uh, in, in many respects, um, just the prototypical American, uh, among the first people to, to live the American dream. You know, born into obscurity um, in Boston. His father was a, a Puritan who was born in 1650. I mean, it's amazing when you think about it. I mean, in, in some ways, Ben Franklin, uh, chronologically, right, he's the oldest of the founding fathers. Um, I think in some ways, in spirit, he's the youngest of the founding fathers. He's the founding father you want to go on spring break with, you know? <laughs> and, and so uh, Ben Franklin, this, this you know, child uh, who grew up in a family of 16, is uh, apprenticed to his brother at a young age. And his brother uh, has a printing business in Boston. And you know, Ben Franklin is, is, is a restless young guy. Um, he has dreams and ambitions of his own. Uh, it seems that his brother sort of kind of holds him back and keeps him down. Um, Franklin is, is always able to play tricks on his brother and pull wool over his eyes. Um, he slips these notes under the door of the print shop at night um, that purport to be from a Boston woman named Silence Do Good. Um, and, you know, she writes all this great gossip about people in town, and his brother is printing it. Meanwhile, his brother would never knowingly allow Franklin to write anything for his newspaper. Um, but, but, you know, he's, he's the, the greatest hit in Boston. Well, well Franklin, who likes so many people, um, white and black, of this era, you know, didn't own his own labor since he was an apprentice. Um, he stole himself away, and he fled Boston, he went briefly to New York. He arrived in Philadelphia. One of the first things he did was he got together you know, the money that he could to buy himself a nice suit of clothes. I guess back then, like now, um, if you looked like you didn't need much money, people were happy to lend it to you. And, and, and so Franklin was able to begin his own printing business. Um, and eventually, he became the publisher of Poor Richard's Almanac. Um, Poor Richard's Almanac um, was a sensation. Um, across the colonies and made Franklin a, a really rich man. Um, by the time he was in his 40s, he was able to retire from business and, and engage um, in, in a world of, of statesmanship and scientific exploration. Um, so it's really amazing when you think about Franklin. I mean, he, he kind of rolls into, into one a whole bunch of different sorts of personalities. Um, you know, he's this, this great businessman um, who's wildly successful. He's sort of like... I don't know, Bill Gates, right? He is, uh, you know, this great scientist. I mean, he really does do the Kite and Key experiment, pulls lightning from the sky, publishes his findings in a scientific journal. You know, he's, he's kind of like the, uh, the Cambridge um, scholar Stephen Hawking, right? So Bill Gates, Stephen Hawking. Uh, uh, poor Richard's Almanac, one of the reasons it's, it's so successful um, is because it's full of, of great wit and wisdom, um, full of great humor, I don't know who your favorite comedian is. This is always a controversial subject. Um, I'm not even going to venture uh, to guess. But he's like the greatest comic of his age. And, and as I mentioned, 
um, he really is quite adept at um, changing his identity to serve various audiences and purposes. And sometimes he does this through writing. He writes under a number of different pseudonyms. So as I said, there's Silence Do Good, um, there's Richard Saunders, there's Poor Richard. Um, you know, all of, all of these different authorial voices allow Franklin to speak in different ways to different groups. And he does it as a person as well. In some ways, he's like an 18th century Madonna, right? He, uh, as, as, as a man in Philadelphia, he's quite a dandy, right? He's, he's always dressed to the nines, um, you know, always perfectly presentable. And yet, during the American Revolution, when the Continental Congress decides to send him over to France as our envoy, Franklin knows that he'll never pass muster um, as, as a member of Parisian court society if he tries to imitate um, their manners and their dress. And, and so what he does instead is he tries to cultivate the image of a rustic, right? The man with the coonskin cap from the wilds of America who can speak multiple languages and, and, and pull lightning from the sky. And, and, and Franklin is very much admired and prized um, for that reason. So Benjamin Franklin, this man who, um, when he sees a problem, he finds a solution. He's very much uh, a product of the American Enlightenment. When we think about the things that Franklin does, the practical things that Franklin does during the course of his life um, to better the lives of his fellow men. The list is long. Um, the, uh, the first lending library in America is established by Ben Franklin, a private institution to which people would buy subscriptions. So they'd buy a membership, but that would entitle you um, to go to this library and check out books. Um, books were expensive in the 18th century, so their membership would go toward buying new books. Um, but why not share these books? Um, that was Franklin's innovation. Um, Philadelphia was one of the first cities in the world to have sidewalks. I mean, this is an amazing, you know, when you think about it, um, I don't want to get too graphic here, but, you know, walking in the road in the 18th century, uh, there were some, some definite pitfalls involved in that. Um, we'll just say there was a lot of muck and mire. And Franklin said, why not elevate ourselves above that um, and have sidewalks? Um, Franklin, of course, invented a stove that um, much more efficiently burned fuel and projected heat. Um, Franklin invented the bifocals. Um, Franklin invented like an early modern flexible catheter. I mean, all sorts of products and, and, and problems were solved by Ben Franklin. Um, and, and, you know, he's very much sort of a, a figure of the American Enlightenment and an exemplar of the fact that the Enlightenment was this um, movement that affected human knowledge on many different levels and many different frontiers. And of course, one of those was politics. And when I think about the, uh, the most important political um, contributor to the Enlightenment, um, on, on the other side of the ocean as well as on this side of the ocean, um, my mind turns to John Locke. Now, John Locke is, uh, I, I would say, if, if someone forced me to come up with a you know, top 10 list of the most important people who lived in the past 1,000 years, 
Um, I, I would, you know, put John Locke on the list in a heartbeat. I might even put him at the very top of the list. Um, John Locke is, uh, of course, the great political thinker um, who's famous uh, for a number of different reasons. Uh, he's famous for his uh, thoughts concerning education, his essay concerning human understanding, uh, his two treatises of government, his contributions to the fundamental orders of South Carolina. He's famous also for his status as a dead ringer for the late great actress Jessica Tandy. It's, it's truly striking. Um, some, some people, some of the uh, Bastiat scholars in the audience, and by the way, I, I forgot to mention this, but uh, Katie Granville asked that you check in with her um, when, you, when you return to the room um, at the start of sessions. Um, but if, if you're one of the younger people, you might not really be familiar um, with Jessica Tandy. Probably her most famous role um, is in the, uh, the film Driving Miss Daisy uh, with, uh, with Morgan Freeman. She plays this uh, sort of grand southern lady um, who has Morgan Freeman as her driver, and over the course of decades, they form a really um, special friendship. Um, you know, here, here they are um, in the car together. <laughs> so, so John Locke uh, has what is, I think, a, a very challenging task in front of him. Um, in, in the midst of the glorious revolution of 1688, now, back in England, um, in 1688, there is this glorious revolution. Um, it's, a, it's glorious because it is relatively bloodless, and it's glorious because it re returns England um, to a period where there is a balanced constitution. In other words, where the monarch does not have a monopoly on power, which is what people in England feared James II on the left was seeking. James II did not play nice with Parliament. James II um, was associated with Catholicism, which for a whole bunch of different reasons in England at the time um, was associated with uh, hierarchy and oppression. Um, when you think about it, when you think about the, the history of the Catholic Church, and I say this as, as a Catholic, but in the 18th century, it's, it's understandable how um, the Anglo-American mind would be hostile to Catholicism. Um, when you think about the, the monarchies of the European mainland, they, uh, the, the, the conflation of church and state, right? It was, it was the, the church that provided the, the monarch with legitimacy, and it was the monarch that provided the church with a monopoly. And if you went against the, the state, you also went against the church. And I mean, this is a very powerful combination when you think about it. As far as subduing a people, if you went against the, the state, you could go to the gallows. And not only at the gallows would there be a, a government executioner, but there would be a priest telling you that you were gonna go to hell. I mean, this is a really, you know, powerful combination that the Catholic Church enjoyed. And so it's not a surprise that, that English Protestants um, viewed their faith as a faith that was consistent with the ideals of liberty. And, and for that reason, and, 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 and for the reason that James II seemed to be amassing power and not sharing it, in the 1688 Glorious Revolution, um, James II was deposed and William and Mary were brought in as, as the new monarchs who would agree to share power with parliament and, and to respect limits upon their authority. 
and to respect that there were certain rights that were enjoyed by certain people. And when John Locke um, you know, decided that it, it fell upon him to explain this, I mean, this is a, a, a difficult sort of thing. I always, uh, I always say it's bad to generalize, um, but I'm going to do it anyway in the case of, of the English. I, I love the English. I, I lived in England for a year. I had a wonderful experience. Um, but, but one of the things that I sort of learned is that there seems to be a heightened degree of risk aversion in England relative to America. Um, people in England, they, they, they like security. Um, people in England, well, like one of the things that they've invented in, in recent decade, decades are uh, cat's eyes, those little reflective things that go on the sides of, of roads so that you can see better at night. Right, I mean that's a very English thing. Like stay, to stay within the lanes. Um, one of the things that they're very good at is queuing, um, or we would call it standing in line. Um, if if you uh, in, in America, I mean our lines are. We're going to talk about the state of nature in a second. Um, state of nature in America is like the grocery store line. Um, I mean, what do you do? I remember as a as a kid, I grew up in Connecticut, and our local grocery store was called Stop and Shop, and I would go to the grocery store with my mother. And, um, you know, my mother would get in one line, but since she wouldn't know, like, if it would be fast or slow, she'd have me stand in another one, right? And if my line went faster, she'd swing her cart over and join me. But if hers was going faster, she'd call me back and I'd join her. Um, and I see people here, they're, they're nodding their heads, they're saying, yeah, oh, I do that too. In, in, in Britain, it's much more common to have these nice compound lines, which you see in America at places like Barnes & Noble. Um, you know, and you stand in this one, you know, single line, and, and when you get to the front, the next available cashier will, will, will help you. Um, but, but anyway, uh, the, the English are a pretty orderly people in many respects. And, and to explain, to justify how it could possibly be legitimate to overthrow the monarch, that's a tall task. And that's a task that fell on John Locke in his second treatise, on government. And, and, and Locke did that um, by essentially telling a story about why we have government in the first place. Um, and, and to this end, I'm going to ask for a volunteer. Is there anyone who wants to volunteer? Yeah, you over there? It's Chris, right? Yeah, so Chris, why don't you come on uh, forward? So, uh, so everybody, this is, uh, this is Chris. And Chris is, uh, you want to stand right here? Chris is standing in a state of nature. <laughs> Ladies, you might want to avert your eyes. Um, so uh, Locke sort of begins this story in, oh, look at that. Can I, this is, this is, this is fantastic. This is a really great uh, book that I recommend um, by, by me. But, but <laughs> we didn't coordinate this beforehand, I, I promise. Um, so anyway, Chris is standing here before us in a state of nature. So a state of nature is um, before there's any government, before there's any civilization, um, before there, are, it's like, you remember the old Outback Steakhouse motto? Um, it was no rules, just right, right? So the state of nature is uh, no rules, just rights. There, there are no external controls upon Chris, but he does have rights because Locke made this point, it's a very important one, rights pre-exist governments. Rights are inherent in our humanity. Um, so we could say that Chris has certain rights because if, if he didn't have them, 
uh, deny him these rights would be to deny him his capacities to function as, as a, a real, authentic human being. For example, we know that Chris is designed to think for himself because there's something about his humanity um, that, that you know, makes that pretty much undeniable. What, what causes us to say, yeah, Chris is supposed to think for himself? What does he have? Un- unlike unlike the, the Tin Man, if I'm getting my uh, wizard, he has a brain, right? We all have brains. I mean, we are designed to think for ourselves. We are not born, you know, attached at the head to other people. We do not share thoughts with other people. It is part of our humanity to think independently. Um, Chris has his life. If he's denied his life, then clearly he's denied his, his ability to function as a human being. We, we know that Chris has, has legs. Um, the, that suggests that he's designed naturally to move about freely, to be at liberty. And he has um, hands. And in the state of nature, according to John Locke, Chris can use his hands to establish property rights and things. So there are no rules in the state of nature, um, and you get to call the shots. So I'm just going to ask you a couple questions. Um, what, what would you probably do like during a typical day in the state of nature? Um, try to survive, really. Right. So, so what would what would you have to do to make that happen? Well, I mean, you have to gather food. You have to, you know, build yourself a shelter. So, so food and shelter. Um, so, how would you how would you get food? Oh well, you're going to either have to go hunt for it yourself. Okay. Or you're going to have to try to cultivate it somehow. Yeah. So, so. Um, Let's say you want to hunt. Maybe what you would do before gun, unless you want to invent gunpowder. Yeah. Um, maybe maybe you, you would take like a branch and you would take like a sharp stone and you would sharpen the branch into a spear and you would use that spear um, to, to, you know, kill uh, an animal to eat. So what Locke would say is as soon as you take that branch and mix your labor with it and turn it into a spear, it becomes your property, right? As soon as you take that spear and use it, to kill an animal, that animal becomes your property, right? And I think he does this because you can't, I know it's tempting, but you can't like, in the state of nature, you can't stand on a mountaintop and like wave your arms and say, I proclaim all of this the empire of Chris, right? Um, that, that, that's not adequate for Locke. But when you mix your, your labor with the things that you find in nature, you establish property rights. Um, and then your, your house, right? Um, you want a shelter. Now, you could, if you're lucky, find a cave because you're basically a caveman. But if you don't, what might you do? You're going to have to fashion one yourself. So, yeah. so what, you know. You're going to have to pull down some branches. Yeah. You're going to have to, you know, make yourself a, a shelter out of, you know, leaves or whatever else you can find. So, so yeah, you could um, build yourself a little hut, a little cabin, maybe take animal skins um, and, and turn those into some sort of tent. Um, so there are all sorts of things that Chris can do. Now, Chris, I, I, I shouldn't really call him a caveman. He's very, very advanced uh, because he has somehow mixed his labor with nature and um, created this amazing thing. Forget Gutenberg, right? He has made this, this fantastic book. And, uh, and it, it, I mean, this is, this is incredible, right? This is the best book ever to exist in the state of nature. Um, and I could say that with authority as a historian. So, so, so anyway, this, this could be your property. Can I have another volunteer? Yeah, um, come on forward. So we met last night. It's Coleman, yeah. All right, well, Coleman, 
um, I can vouch for him. He is a truly nice guy. Uh, but for the purposes of our little reenactment, Coleman is a barbarian, all right? And Coleman, Coleman, you're looking at that book. Oh my gosh, that looks like a great read, doesn't it? Wow, that would really, I mean, you can't resist. I don't know how anyone possibly could. Um, well, you want that book, don't you? And I can't help but notice um, you have, um, use your imaginations, please, a big club in your hand. How, how are you going to get that book? Well, either you're going to give it to me or I'm going to hit your head. Yeah. So uh, let's, let's just go the easy way, okay? I'd, I'd just give it to him. So... Uh, so this is the problem that Locke identifies with the state of nature. We have these rights, life, liberty, property, right? But it's, it's, it's problematic in that we don't have an easy, ready means to secure those rights. So I'm going to go kind of Oprah right now and ask Chris, Chris, how does that make you feel? The fact that he took, I mean, that was, that's a great book, yeah, man. That was, that was my book. I yeah. So, so what, what can we do to empower you? I need to have some, something to defend my, myself and my rights here. Okay, so, uh, so one solution certainly is, you know, maybe you could try to get a bigger club. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, that's, but, but then again, there's always going to be another guy with a bigger club. What's another possibility? Um, I'm, I'm going to have to have some help. Maybe. I like it. I like that. Do we have maybe two other volunteers? This won't take long. Two, two people? You guys? Yeah? Thank you so much for volunteering. At West Point, we call it you're being, being voluntold. Yeah. So, uh, so, yeah, thank you so much. Um, we're all about, like, volunteerism here and, and not compelling people to do anything. So, so you're, you're Zach and you're uh, uh, Isai. So Isai and, and, and Zach are going to team up with, with Chris, and you're going to get back from Colton your property. You guys want to just sort of make this happen? <laughs> <laughs> well done, well done. So, so Colton, uh, you are banished back to, uh, to your seat, um, you, you terrible barbarian. Although, uh, a round of applause for, for Colton. And now for, for these guys, uh, so that was kind of heroic. You, you put your necks out there um, to help Chris and help secure his property and restore it to him. Um, in return, what would you ask? Yeah, so for reciprocity. So if, if you ever find that your life, and it, you know, it could have been worse, right? They, I mean, it, this is a horrible thing to be deprived of. I just want to tell you. But, uh, but, it, but it could be even worse, right? You could have lost your liberty. You could have been kidnapped or enslaved. You could have lost your life. Um, so maybe you guys could band together and agree that you're going to protect each other's lives and your liberty and your property. And if ever, you know, one of your rights comes into threat or under threat by some external barbaric force, not pointing any fingers, um, then, then you will be there for one another. And that, according to, to, to Locke, that's sort of the origin of, of government. Now, he, he sort of uh, projects this forward a couple of uh, generations. Let's imagine that um, in the future, Zach III should sort of rise up and declare himself, right, the emperor of, of, this, of this civilization and should start depriving, um, you know, the descendants of its original members. 
of, of their lives or their liberty or their property. What then, according to John Locke, do those people have the right to do? What, what, what should they do re- regarding Zach III? Well, everyone's saying revolt, kick him out. But remember, John Locke is English, all right? So he's very polite and he's very reserved. Before you do that, before you go to that sort of extreme, what do you do? You petition. You complain. You protest, right? And if still Zach III doesn't start behaving nicely, what then do they have the right to do? then they have the right to overthrow their government and to bring in a new government which does what government is supposed to do, to protect individual rights to life, to liberty, and to property. Well, anyway, thank you guys very much. Round of applause for our just great acting. So the, uh, this, the state of nature um, is, is this uh, important concept because it, it gets at Um, why we have government in the first place. And broadly construed, right, government exists to protect property, our property in our lives, our property in our liberty, our property in our our estates. And and this is a fundamental tenet of the Anglo-American mind, of, of, of British American thought. In 1761, We have James Otis, who would emerge as uh, an early Boston revolutionary. Um, James Otis repeating the the sort of basic, basically understood English principle that um, one of the most essential branches of English liberty is the freedom of one's house. A man's house is his castle. And when you think about that, think about what that means. I mean, if, if your house is your castle, what are you inside your house? You're the king or the queen inside your house. And if you're the king or the queen inside your house, who is not the king or queen inside your house? The king or queen, right? The government. So, I mean, there's this very important principle that government is not totalitarian that government has limits, that those limits maybe extend uh, to the border between the public road and your property. The king can be king on the public road. The king can be king in the public square, but you're the king on your property, and your neighbor is the king or queen on his or her property. And this is a really important principle for, for freedom, because if you want to ensure that you have the right to control what is yours, you need to tolerate your neighbor's right to control what is his or hers. And so this is, this is something that breeds not only the restriction of government power, but this is something that conditions us to be tolerant of one another. So I mean, this is a very important concept. And and it's echoed by another American founder, James Madison, who says government is instituted to protect property of every sort. This being the end of government, in other words, the purpose of government, that alone is a just government, 
which impartially secures to every man whatever is his own. So this, this is a, a fundamental component of our English liberty. And if you were to speak to any person living in British North America in the middle of the 18th century, they would be thrilled to be British, in part because to be English meant to enjoy liberty. To be English meant to enjoy freedom. They loved being English. The only place, in fact, that it was probably better to be English than England was in America, where we had so much land, so much opportunity, a much higher percentage of people enjoyed uh, the franchise, a much higher percentage of people were literate. We are probably the most well-fed and most prosperous people on the globe by the time of the midpoint of the 18th century. On average, the average American is, is much more prosperous than the average Englishman. So it was great to be English, and it was great to be English in America. And, and when the Seven Years' War came, when, which we call the French and Indian War, when, when England went to war against France, and in America, when England went to war against France and its many Native American allies, and the Native Americans, they were nobody's fool, they allied themselves with France because France had a very different model of colonization. When the French sent people to the New World, um, by and large, they didn't send families as the English did. The English sent families who were engaged in agriculture, families that um, in New England, for example, on average, they had eight kids per family. The, the English-speaking population of the North American continent was doubling every 20 years. So it's very reasonable that the Native Americans would side with the French, who, instead of sending farming families, sent priests and fur traders, you know, people who traded with them. I mean, trade, by definition, is mutually beneficial. And, 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 and so the relationship with, with the French is quite satisfying to them. Of course they're going to side with the French. But Americans, of course we're going to side with the English. The English are us, and the English are free. And the French are the original evil empire, as far as we're concerned. And, and during the French and Indian War, this man rises to the throne, George III. And they love him in England, and we love him here, Everybody loves him, with the possible exception of Dalmatians. <laughs> and, and no one during the course of the French and Indian War would have ever suspected that George III would soon become an object of their hate. George III um, is this man who is a descendant of the Glorious Revolution who has inherited the mantle um, that obligates him to protect the liberties of the English. He is a good guy. Unlike, you know, France is on King Louis the whatever, right? I mean, when you're up to the teens, as far as your Louis are concerned, you know that something is strangely amiss. So they, they are happy to fight in behalf of the English and the French in Indian War. 
One of the, uh, the best books that we have about the French and Indian War is by a scholar named Fred Anderson. He's written actually a, number, a couple of the, the best books we have about that war. His first book focuses on the colony of Massachusetts, which has particularly good records of its contributions to the French and Indian War. And fully one third of all military aged men in Massachusetts, and this is an incredible degree of mobilization, put on a uniform and leave the colony of Massachusetts to fight in the French and Indian War. I mean, we are not just passively watching this take place. We have lots of skin in the game. And, and, and we are uh, you know, avid and important participants in this conflict. Now, I teach at West Point. I should stipulate, too, by the way, that my views don't necessarily represent those of the United States Military Academy, the Army, and the United States government. Um, and if they did, I, you probably wouldn't listen to me. Uh, but, but anyway, uh, I, of course, am an expert on military history, right? So let me boil it down for you. There were red arrows. There were blue arrows. There were red explosions. And there were blue explosions. And we won. We won the French and Indian War. What a fantastic thing. And, and yet, during the course of the French and Indian War, Britain's debt doubled. Wars are expensive in many ways and on many levels. And certainly financially, wars are expensive. Britain's debt doubles. And so at the conclusion of this war, it's, it's not shocking that Parliament will look for ways to avoid future expensive wars and also find ways to pay down its debt. How to avoid future expensive wars? Well, the, the, France, the French are, are ejected from the North American continent. The French army is no more. The French empire in North America is no more. They retain possession of Haiti and uh, two tiny rocks off the coast of Nova Scotia um, translated into uh, St. Pete and Big Mike. Um, they have their own names. I can't remember what they are, but that's what they translate into. They're still there. It's interesting. Um, but beyond, So the French are gone, but the Indians remain. The Native Americans remain. And, and the British are, are wise to the fact that it's quite possible as English colonists push west, the English of America and the Native Americans will come into conflict. And that could spark a new, big, expensive war. So in 1763, the British uh, institute the proclamation line of 1763. This sort of invisible line over the crest of the Appalachian Mountains, across which British North American colonists cannot um, move. The land to the west is reserved for the Native Americans. The land to the east is reserved for the English colonists. Now, many English colonists view this as a, a, a terrible insult. All of this land, all the way up to the Mississippi River, is now British land, their land, the land for which they fought. People who live in the back country up against this line are especially upset because they fought most, most commonly against the Native Americans themselves. They were the ones who engaged these enemies. They were the ones who saw their crops cut down or their settlements burnt. Those were the enemies. 
who caused their sons and their husbands and their fathers to, to lose their lives or their limbs. And now their government, the British government, was siding with their enemies. Or so it seemed. So, I mean, this is, this is really, uh, really disappointing for the people who are settlers of the back country. And it's almost as if the British um, have gone to um, the old bookstore and they walked into the self-hurt section <laughs> and, and bought a book called How to Lose an Empire for Dummies. And, uh, and, and this is merely chapter one, the proclamation line. Chapter, the, the preface is when George Washington, a colonel in the Virginia militia, wants permission to buy a regular commission in the British army as an officer, tell him no. Tell him no, because he's not British enough. What a terrible mistake that the British made. Can you imagine? I mean, they could have had George Washington in their army, but instead they turn him away. And that, in a nutshell, is, is similar to the experiences of many Americans during the French and Indian War. Familiarity can breed contempt. The British seemed much better when they were an abstraction. But now that Americans have come into contact with the English, and now that the English are, are reaching out and touching us with their laws, our, uh, our, our warmth toward them is beginning to wear thin. If the proclamation line is designed to prevent a future expensive war, there, of course, is the other problem, the fact that the British are already deeply in debt. When the British look at the balance sheet, they can see that in the year 1763, they receive in revenue from the American colonies 1,800 pounds. Now, you know, I don't know what a pound back then was worth and what 1,800 pounds would buy, but I can give you another figure that will allow you um, to get a sense of the, the, regu the, the relative value of that revenue that the British received from their American colonies. It's the number um, of pounds that the British government spent on its American colonies. They got 1,800 pounds in revenue. In expenses, 384,000 pounds. So if you're a member of parliament, it's not crazy to say maybe the colonists could pay a little bit more. Maybe they can pay a little bit more in taxes. And thus, in 1765, was born the Stamp Act. And yet the Stamp Act is, is like chapter two of how to lose an empire for dummies. For, for a number of different reasons. The first is it violates a very important, cherished principle, which is that there should not be any taxation without representation. There's no representation of the colonists in parliament. Not as far as they're concerned, they're used to a tradition of direct representation, where you elect people who live near you and, and who know you, and they go off to the House of Burgesses or whatever your colonial assembly is called and represent you. The British have a different tradition of virtual representation. They say that every member of parliament represents everybody within the British Empire. That's not good enough for the American colonists. If, if the government, if somebody, well, Let's not put it in terms of the government. If someone reaches into your pocket and takes your money without asking, 
What do, I know we live in morally relativistic times, but what do we call that? It's theft. It's stealing. Parliament is reaching into their pockets and taking their money without asking. Parliament is violating the, the very right that government is created to protect. With the proclamation line, their liberty was violated. With the Stamp Act, their right to property is violated. And in a very obnoxious and odious way, actual stamps were placed on actual paper products, reminding Americans that they were paying extra um, to have a newspaper, for example. And that's the other thing. Um, when the British were on, this is chapter two of How to Lose an Empire for Dummies. Um, if you're looking to alienate uh, important constituencies, a Stamp Act allows you to really check a lot of boxes. If, 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 if you wanted um, to lose an empire, who in America would you want to turn against you? You know, would you want the lawyers to turn against you? They're always overrepresented in the houses of assembly. Would you want that if you wanted to lose an empire? You would, right? So you would mandate that the stamp had to be placed on legal documents. Would you want the press against you? Oh, yeah. Right? So you would mandate that the stamp had to be placed on newspapers. And what an inconvenience. I mean, the newspapers will be more expensive, um, so uh, printers will sell fewer copies. Um, but the copies that they do sell, they'll need to keep track of, of the revenue that they collect and keep records on this. I mean, what a cumbersome um, pain that they have to endure. Um, would you want the clergy to turn against you? You, you would if, if your object was to lose an empire. So let's mandate that the stamp has to go on Bibles and marriage licenses. Um, and you're British, remember, so you're very polite. You want everybody to feel included. Professors probably aren't important, but they think they are. So mandate that the stamp has to go on college diplomas. I mean, this, this huge constituency of individuals, including, most importantly of all, I think, merchants, right? These people who have these intercolonial connections, who are plugged into people in different colonies, who are part of a British North American network, they are alienated by the Stamp Act. And, and of course, for good measure, let's put, um, require that the stamp be placed upon um, packages of playing cards and dice so that uh, the, the, the drunken people of pubs can form mobs against us. Right? So the Stamp Act is, is a real sort of disaster. And the, uh, and, and the people of British North America rise up in protest. They refuse to buy any products that bear the stamp. They target um, for ridicule and shame and even tarring and feathering stamp tax collectors. And, and the Stamp Act elicits from them a degree of outrage that they had never expressed before um, in an incredibly blunt and way that I think should make all of us wince. John Adams sort of expresses the view of the people of British America best. We are not going to allow ourselves to be treated as badly as we treat the people who we enslave. You know, we are the possessors of English liberty, and that is just not right. And the result is that the British do away with the Stamp Act. They repeal it. And in so doing, they condition us. 
If, if they pass a law that we don't like, we're going to protest, we're going to petition, we're going to boycott, we're going to go after tax collectors, right? and, and, and we're going to count on them to hear us and repeal the measure that we detest. And this is going to happen again. In 1767, the British are going to pass the Townsend Duties, a series of taxes on lead, glass, paint, paper, and tea. And we're going to protest. And we're going to petition. And we're going to boycott those products. And sure enough, in March of 1770, the British are going to repeal those taxes. And they hope that the day when they do this will live long in our memories as a day of good Anglo-American relations. And yet we remember that day, March 5th, 1770, for a different reason. Because in Boston on that day, there was a British sentry. These poor British soldiers who were sent to Boston. You know, we, nowadays we call them peacekeeping troops. The people of, of Boston, of course, saw them as, as oppressors. They weren't there to protect them. There weren't, you know, Native Americans amassing in the outskirts of Boston. There were no Frenchmen anywhere around. They were clearly there to keep the people of Boston in line. And on the night of March 5th, 1770, um, there was a poor British soldier who had to stand guard in front of the building that was the biggest target in the entire town, the Customs House. Now, you should know that tensions had been especially high for the past couple of days, because two days earlier, Saturday, March 3rd, 1770, there were a group of off-duty British soldiers walking through town who encountered a group of probably intoxicated young Boston men. And one of the Boston men um, called out to the British soldiers. And you should know that another thing as well. The British soldiers, they were allowed to moonlight. They were allowed to work odd jobs. So when they arrived, they depressed um, the wages that the men of Boston can earn because you know, the demand for labor stayed the same, but the supply went up. So anyway, one of these guys on, on Saturday night said, hey, any of you British soldiers need a job? And one of them turned and he said, yeah, yes, I do. And, the, uh, and I'll clean this up just slightly um, since we're about to have lunch. The, the, the British uh, uh, soldier was told by the Bostonian, clean my outhouse. And of course, these were fighting words. And of course, there was a big brawl. Tensions were high. Next day was Sunday. People went to church. The day after that was Monday, March 5th, 1770. And here's this soldier standing in front of the, the customs house where the tax collectors work. And we have um, a number of young kids show up. And they start pelting the soldier with um, snowballs. And then, and then sticks and stones and words that hurt him. And, 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 and then he called out for reinforcements, and the crowd got larger, and adults joined in. And, and, and then more and more people um, started to, to join this, this massive crowd. And then, for reasons that we don't understand, all of the church bells of Boston started to ring. And on a random weeknight, when all the church bells start to ring, what's that a sign of? It could be some public emergency. Someone said fire. That's probably the most dreaded of all. This is a city built principally of wood. So people come out of their homes with, with buckets full of water and they descend upon the center of town and they gather around the, the customs house and this crowd gets bigger and bigger and the bells are ringing and people are, are shoving each other and shouting and, 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 uh, and people are yelling things. And, and again, what are the bells a sign of? Fire! Someone yells. And the British soldiers do. And the result is the Boston Massacre. Now, it's not really a massacre. This is the Boston 
awful incident. But, but Paul Revere, who engraves this drawing, portrays it as a massacre. And so Americans come to believe that the British government, which is supposed to be protecting life and liberty and property, is instead endangering and imperiling those very things. Three years later, December 1773, the Boston Tea Party takes place. Americans um, don costumes to make themselves look like Mohawk Indians. I think because if anyone was brought to trial, they could um, claim that they hadn't seen their neighbors engaging in this activity. Um, and perhaps also because they wanted to, to tell the British, we are not Englishmen. We are Native Americans. They throw 90,000 pounds in terms of weight into Boston Harbor in protest of the Tea Act. And the British government, which up to this point has always repealed its laws in the face of American protests, this time in a great example of inconsistent parenting, decides that it is going to go way overboard in the opposite direction. And it passes early in 1774 what it calls the Coercive Acts, what we call the Intolerable Acts. Patrick Henry says that we are in a state of nature. The British government, which is supposed to be protecting life and liberty and property, is endangering all those things. The British government, through the coercive acts, is not allowing us to have town meetings, not allowing our assembly to meet, has closed off Boston Harbor. People begin to say that the British aren't treating us like Englishmen anymore. Some people say they're treating us like slaves. Other people say they're treating us like Irishmen, like a conquered people. People begin to wonder. What is the nature of this relationship? What is the sustainability of this relationship? And the British, following carefully along their guide, How to Lose an Empire for Dummies, make the ultimate mistake in March and April of the following year when they hatch and execute plans to send troops out to Concord through Lexington to seize the weapons of the people of Massachusetts. They follow this, uh, this long road about 18 miles out from Boston. And uh, they're turned back at the Old North Bridge and on their way back um, in their retreat um, to Boston. There are a number of Americans in the, in the, the tree line um, who will take shots at them. Um, and there's one man, a man named Samuel Wedemore, an 80-year-old man, a veteran of two British wars. Twice in his life he has put on a uniform and fought for Britain, but this time he's hiding behind his stone wall. And he's ready, he has his musket loaded, he has two pistols loaded, and he has the sword that he had taken from the body of a French officer he had slain at the fortress of Louisbourg. And he is waiting for the British to return. And as they come down the road, Samuel Wedemore, you can imagine his hands quivering, right? He, he aims his musket as best he can, and he fires it, and down goes one red coat. And then he reloads it, and he fires it again, and down goes the second red coat. And finally, probably they see a shock of white hair or something from behind the stone wall. Uh, a detachment of, of red coats mounts the wall, and they, they stab Samuel Wedemore with their bayonets as he fires his pistols and, and takes down a third red coat. And he's flailing with his sword as they stab him with their bayonets. How many times? Take a wild guess. How many colonies were there? 13 times. And they shoot him in the face. 
and they leave him for dead. But guess what? Samuel Wedmore doesn't die. Samuel Wedmore lives for 18 years to die a 98-year-old citizen of the free and independent United States. Samuel Wedmore, in a nutshell, is a representative of the transformation of the American mind. How the ideas of the Enlightenment and the principles of what government should do and should be motivated Americans who are once loyal British subjects to assert their rights as free and independent American citizens. Thank you very much. So I think we have some, some time for questions. Yes. Thank you. When the colonists, of course, knew that they sent 1,800 pounds to Britain but were costing massive amounts more to be defended, what was the response and how to address that? So, um, you know, the, the colonists, from their perspective, um, is, as far as direct payments to the British government, well, that was one thing. But as far as indirect payments to the British government, um, they felt as if they had contributed mightily during the course of the French and Indian War. I mean, this had drained their treasuries as well. This had caused them, you know, not only to send forth um, their sons and their, and their brothers, but, but to pay and provision them. So this was a big burden that had been imposed upon them. And uh, they sort of felt like they had earned their place at the, at the big person's table. And, and, and for the British to, to turn to them and say it wasn't enough afterwards, um, to them was really uh, ridiculous. And when you consider what the British in the, years come, in the years forthcoming would be spending their money on the colonies um, on, it would be manning forts and protecting a frontier that they could not even populate thanks to the proclamation line of 1763. Um, so they felt as if A, um, the British government wasn't entitled to this sort of payment. Um, but B, as far as like how the government should go about seeking revenue from them, it, it was supposed to go through their local assemblies, through the Massachusetts Assembly, through the Virginia House of Burgesses, where the people were actually represented. Um, and, and, and they didn't object to taxes, by the way, that had as an object the mere regulation of trade. They accepted the regulation of trade as, as an imperial um, prerogative that was external to the colonies. But these taxes were different because they were specifically designed to raise revenue from the people of, of America. Thank you. Yes. I have two quick questions. So the first one, do you think the first fatal mistake that the Brits committed was to invest too much in the French-Indian War so that, such that they got too much indebted? That's question number one. Okay. And the question number two is, uh, uh, who lent the money to the British in the first place to invest uh, in military protection of the, uh, the border then? Great. Um, so I'll, I'll try to answer the second question first. Um, what seems to be the case in, in, in all of these wars, um, it's certainly the case in the American Revolution, when the Continental Congress is borrowing money, when state governments are borrowing money, um, to a certain degree, yes, they may be funded by, say, the Netherlands 
or they may be funded by you know, the French government or the Spanish government. But the, the lion's share of the money that, that our Continental Congress owes and that I suspect the British government owes is owed to, to its own people. Um, owed to, you know, in the form of IOUs and bonds um, to the people of, of, of Great Britain. Um, was it a mistake for the British to invest so heavily in the French and Indian War? I think it depends on your perspective. Um, if you're British and the year is 1763, no. This was an amazing victory. I mean, you know, the British Empire had been expanded tremendously, and the great French threat to it had been eliminated from the North American continent. And yet, from the perspective of 20 years into the future, 1783, when the British signed the Treaty of Paris, recognizing the independence of the United States and recognizing all of that territory that had been won in the French and Indian War between the Appalachian Mountains and the Mississippi River as American territory. Um, the irony, of course, is that this, this British uh, set of policies that had been instituted in the 1760s that were designed to A, um, correct the imbalance in their treasury, and B, prevent a future expensive war. In fact, created a future expensive war that worsened the balance in their treasury and caused them to lose the empire that they had gained in the first place against the French and the Indians. So from the standpoint of 1763, I can only imagine that they must have been very regretful. Yeah, thank you. And I guess, uh, do we have time for, for another? Uh, what would you say is, was the basis for Locke's view, views that rights pre-exist government? I mean, Locke uh, you know, put his, his argument in theological terms, that these are God-given rights, um, that I think is you know, a view that's completely consistent with the idea that um, we are created as, as human beings who uh, need these rights in order to, in fact, be human beings, that if we're denied these rights, we're denied our humanity. Um, if governments are giving us rights, then really they're not rights as Locke conceived of them. Locke is, is speaking of natural rights. And, and it's probably useful for us to remind ourselves of the distinction between natural rights and civil rights, right? You might have a civil right to vote, Obviously, you're not going to be going to the polling station in a state of nature. There are no elections before government exists. You might have a, a civil right to a trial by jury, right? You, you, you're not going to have uh, courts in a state of nature. But your natural rights exist merely by the basis of, of your membership within the human race. Um, and we create governments to protect those rights. Um, governments don't bestow upon us um, rights you know, like life and liberty and property. Governments, if they're legitimate, can protect those rights and recognize those rights. Um, and if the government doesn't recognize or protect them, according to Locke, that's the basis of the illegitimacy of a particular government. Um, time for, I guess, one quick uh, additional question. Okay. This is uh, based on my review of reading complete textbooks as a school board president in Pennsylvania. Okay. And these are all AP and history textbooks. One of the, uh, <clears throat> and this is, pers this is exactly right, this is not hearsay. The Constitution is this based on rules of the Iroquois nation, the Iroquois nation, and with no basis or statement in the textbooks regarding Magna Carta or John Locke. 
So my question, we of course argue this, right. that this is not true, but is there any basis of some connection with the Iroquois nation and how it influenced the, uh, the founding fathers? Yeah, it's an interesting question. It's funny, this was sort of like all the rage in the late 90s. Oh, it's still this, there, by the way. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it, it's, it's 90% not true. I knew that. Um, but I think we can say um, that the, the League of the Iroquois were um, a, a role model for the colonies in one sense. Um, you know, the, the League of the Iroquois, uh, you know, was established, uh, it was a union of, I'm not going to forget all of them, the Seneca, the Iroquois, the uh, Oneonta, Mohawk, you know, so, so a number of, of different, you know, Indian nations had joined together. And obviously together, they had more leverage at, at the bargaining table when they were negotiating treaties of trade. Um, and together they were more resilient and, and more robust as a military force. Um, and Ben Franklin saw this, um, and it's, you know, one of the things that, that Franklin says inspires him to propose in 1754 um, this sort of loose confederation that was called the Albany Plan of Union. And the idea was that we would have this extra little layer of government, you know, wouldn't do much, but it would allow the colonies to join together to negotiate treaties of trade and to better coordinate their activities in behalf of the British. This is not an anti-British thing at all, um, militarily. And, and yet, when this was sent out to the colonial assemblies in 1754, not a single one gave it a serious hearing. Um, they valued far too much their autonomy. They valued far too much their ability um, to govern themselves. There was no way that a, a Quaker from Pennsylvania would want to share power um, and live under rules made in part by some slaveholder from South Carolina. There was no way that, that a person from Rhode Island was going to want to share power with and, make, and live under rules made in part by um, you know, one of their neighbors to the north in Massachusetts. They valued their, their ability to decide for themselves far too much. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, very two quick points. Number one, for those of you who may not have noticed, we will have on Sunday morning an opportunity to go and visit Independence Hall, and we've found on Craigslist someone who's willing to be a, uh, a guide is Professor Rob McDonald teaches is a military academy and claims to be an expert on the American founding period. So he is going to do that. And if you're interested, do talk to my colleagues. Make sure you get on the list so that we can have that organized Sunday morning for those who are going to be uh, sticking around. We're going to have lunch where breakfast was served. And then we will start exactly at 1.25. We'll be in the room. And 1.30, we'll start again with the next session. Thank you very much. Oh, one more thing. For the Bastiat students, just talk to my colleague, Katie, very quickly, if you will. We're going to be having a meeting uh, this evening where old people will tell you how the world works.